Alright, so I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And so, as we study in this section uh, of chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Genesis, it really marks an important turning point in the scripture. Now, up to this point, the story has been that of the whole Adamic race. Now, there's been neither Jew nor Gentile, and all have been really in the first Adam. They've been one in the first Adam, Adam and Eve. So now, from this point forward in the Scriptures, the human race must be seen as really a great river from which God, in the call of Abram, the creation of the nation of Israel, draws off a really small stream through which he may at last purify the great river itself. Now, Israel is the tool through which God chose to bring a Savior to the world. And it's important for us to note that neither Abram nor Israel were perfect in any way. They didn't do anything special to deserve this. In fact, as we will see today, Abram was far from perfect. But when God spoke to him, Abram, Abram responded, I'm going to say Abraham a hundred different times instead of Abram, but I, I'm trying to be good here because that's what he is right now. But Abram, when God spoke to him, Abram responded, and that is exactly what God was looking for. It was by grace that God chose Abram and the nation Israel to bring revelation and salvation to the world. And it was through the faith of Abram, which God changed his name to Abraham, that the nation Israel would be called. So before we move on, let's quickly talk about what God wanted Israel uh, to do. So let's talk about the call of Israel. Now first, Israel was called by God to be a witness to the unity of God in the midst of universal idolatry. We're going to see that idolatry had spread all around the world at this point. And then next, Israel was called to illustrate the blessedness of serving the true God. For God would show his, the world his power through the nation Israel. And then Israel was called to receive and preserve the divine revelations. All of the prophecy and scriptures that are contained in the word of God have come through the Jewish race. And then last, Israel was called to be the human channel of the Messiah. The book of Matthew contains the genealogy of Jesus Christ and how it can be traced from Adam to David and then to Mary. And Israel became the path that God used to bring Jesus Christ to the world as God incarnate in man. And they brought him to the world to provide salvation for a lost, lost world. Amen? Aren't you glad that he brought Jesus Christ? Amen. So this is how important Israel is to our faith. And how it all began was with the call of Abram. So let's begin here in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. And it says, These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old, and then he begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. So now over the last couple of weeks... We have talked about the line of Ham, really. We talked a little bit about the other two, but really focused on Ham. And we focused on Nimrod as the grandson of Ham and the founder of the city of Babel. And how that city was the inception of Satan's civic masterpiece, 
the city of Babylon. And we talk about all the eschatology that goes along with this, uh, Babylon as the city. Now, Moses takes us down the line of Shem, and it was Shem's line that God's line was found. At last, he finds a man, or the man, upon whose faith the rest of the Bible is made to hinge on. Verses 24 and 26 of chapter 11 says, And Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah a hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And God tells us that Terah is Abram's father and that he was seventy years old when Abram was born. Now, as most of you are aware, Abram is a person that we all know as Abraham. And later we will see that God is the one who changes his name to Abraham. So the word of God will follow the line of Abraham directly to the cross of Christ. And God has recorded all of these events up to this point as an introduction or a preclude to the focus or the purpose of the entire Word of God. That focus is Jesus Christ. Jesus can be found in every verse of the Bible, and in fact, if you don't find him in a verse, then you better go back and read it again because he is there. Now, this introduction, which leads us to Jesus Christ, was given for one purpose, to show man that he needs God. He needs the salvation that will be provided by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by all of these events that have led up to this point, God has now demonstrated to man that he is in sin. This introduction leads us to knowing that we need God. He needs the salvation and we need the salvation that will be provided by the blood of Christ. And it's by all of these events that have led up to this point that God has now demonstrated to man that he is in sin. So we see this first in the incident of Cain and Abel, where we find that Cain would not acknowledge that he was even a sinner. In him we find or see a demonstration of the pride of life. And then at the flood we see the sin of the flesh, because the people then were given over to the sins of the flesh. They were indulging in violence, and every thought was and imagination was evil. They were blind to their need of God, and they were deaf to God's claim on them as their creator. And they were dead to God and dead to trespasses and sin. And God gave them an invitation through Noah, and they spurned that invitation and remained in the sins of the flesh. And so God destroyed them. And then at the Tower of Babel, we see the sin of the will or the sin of rebellion against God. So at this point, and this is now about 375 years after the flood, I didn't go do an exact count of the years to see, but I just looked on Google to see uh, how many years they say, so I could be a little bit wrong. But about 375 years after the flood, man is once again totally corrupted by sin, unable to even recognize his condition without the convicting power of God. Now, man needed God to provide him a way out. And the rest of the Bible, from this point forward, is God's provision of a completed salvation for the creation that he loves. And this path forward started with the call of Abram. We go to Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. So now these are the generations of Terah. 
Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, um, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from the Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came into Haran and dwelt there, and the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. All right, so here Moses pauses, and Moses is the author of the book of uh, Genesis, but he pauses to look at Abram's family ties that will play a large part in his life. And we're introduced to Lot, who in so many ways was the actual opposite of Abram. Then we see Sarah, Abram's half-sister, who becomes his wife. And the marriage of Abram's uh, brother, Nahor, is mentioned because he becomes the grandfather of Laban and Rebekah, both of whom become important in the life of Abram's grandson, Jacob. So as we end chapter 11 and begin chapter 12, we see really a major dividing point in the chronology and the theme of the book of Genesis. So we see it uh, differently in the message as well as in the chronology uh, of, in the theme of the book of Genesis. Now the first 11 chapters are all on one side of this dividing point, and the last 39 chapters that we have still to study are on the other side of this dividing point. Now the, in the first 11 chapters, we cover over 2,000 years as long a period as the rest of the Bible put together. Now, in, you contrast that 2,000 years with the 350 years that are covered in the book of Genesis, chapter 12 through 50. And so you've got 2,000 just for the, in the first 11 chapters. You've got 350 covered through in chapters 12 through 50. So in the first 11 chapters, we see the creation, the fall of man, the flood and the Tower of Babel. And, and these are the four great events which are occurred during that long span of 2,000 years. Now, chapter 12 brings us to the other side of the dividing point, which runs through the rest of the book of Genesis. And the atmosphere is altogether different here. And we're going to slow down to a walk instead of the run that we've been doing to get through all these other events. Now, the emphasis turns from events truly tremendous events such as the creation of the flood to personalities. Now, not all of these personalities were great, but all of them were important. And in the last 39 chapters of the book of Genesis, we will see four of these important personalities. And others will follow in subsequent books of the Bible. God will no longer be dealing with events, but with a man, and from that man, he will make a nation. Now, the four personalities that we're going to take up in the rest of our study of the book of Genesis are Abraham, the man of faith. And that's going to be in chapters 12 through 23. And then we'll see Isaac, the beloved son, in chapters 24 to 26. And next we'll see Jacob, the chosen and chastened son, in chapters 27 to 36. And then we will see Joseph's suffering and glory in chapters 37 to 50. 
Now these four patriarchs are extremely important to the understanding of the Word of God, and we will be discussing each of these personalities in great detail as we go forward. So Abraham uh, was a great man. In fact, he is one of the greatest men who ever lived on this earth. Now, that's a strong statement to make uh, about Abraham, right? Considering all of the infamous people who have lived on this earth. Now, I've talked about infamous and famous. There is a difference, but there are a lot of people who are just famous too, right? But I believe that he is one of the greatest men who ever lived on this earth. So the question becomes, Keith, well, how do you measure great men? Well, to begin with, the man has to be famous. And certainly Abraham measures up to that. With the possible exception of Jesus Christ, he is probably the world's most famous man. Even in this day of radio, television, and the Internet, probably more people have heard of Abraham than of anyone else. More have heard of Abraham than have heard of the President of the United States, or even the head of any state, or of any movie star, or of any athlete. Because the three great religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they all trace back to Abraham. Now, there are literally millions of people in Asia and Africa today who have heard of Abraham but have never heard of the ones who make the headlines in our country. One of the marks of a great man is fame, and Abraham was certainly famous. Now, another mark of a great man is that he must be of noble character. Some people will argue with that, but he needs to be of noble character or a generous man. Now, can you imagine anyone more generous than Abraham? I doubt whether there is a man alive today who would do what he did. When Abraham and his nephew Lot came back into the land of Palestine, you'll recall that Abraham told Lot to choose any portion of that land that he wanted. And Abraham said he would just take what was left. Now today, you can't even get people to give up their seats in church, let alone give up a portion of land promised uh, to them by God, right? But Abraham was a generous man. And then there is also the story of how generous Abraham was with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He told them he wouldn't take the booty, not even so much as a shoestring, because God was the one to whom he was looking. So the marks of a great man include being famous and being of noble character. Now the next mark of a great man is that he must live in a momentous time. He must be, as Napoleon said, a man of destiny. Now, the man in the right time must meet at the crossroads of life. Now, that was certainly true of Abraham. Now, I believe that the world would agree with me on those first three categories, right, that I've listed here. However, they may or may not agree with me on the last one, which is the fourth one. But I believe that fourth reason or criteria is an essential part of a great man, and it is that he must be a man of faith. Now, you'll notice that all great men, even when they are not Christians, have something in which they believe in. They have a cause. They have something that drives them. Abraham had his faith in the one true almighty God. God said that Abraham was a man of faith in the Bible, 
the greatest thing that is said about Abraham is that he believed God. Not believed in God, but believed God when he spoke to him. Romans 4, 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. As we go through these chapters in Genesis, we're going to find that God appeared to Abraham seven times. And each time it was to develop faith in his life. Now, this does not mean that Abram uh, was perfect, or Abraham either way, you want to call him. It was perfect. The fact of the matter is, he failed many times. God gave him four tests, and he fell flat on his face on all four of them. But like Simon Peter, he got up, brushed himself off, and started again. Now, know this for a certainty, that if God has touched your heart and life, you are also going to fall. We all do. None of us are perfect, but you are surely going to get up and start over again. We, all, we will see this happen in Abraham's life as we go through the chapters that are before us. So, with that whole introduction, that was eight pages of notes, with all that introduction to get the ground set, let's begin our discussion of Abraham's faith by reading chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 in the book of Genesis. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now these are three powerful, powerful verses. And they have two real key points that I'm going to bring out. Now, the first is the covenant made by God to Abraham. You can recall from this uh, study of the covenants that, and the summary of the covenants that we had uh, several weeks ago, this is now the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this covenant was formed and confirmed in six aspects. First, we have the promise of a great nation. God told Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. Now, this had primary reference to Israel to whom the everlasting possession of the land is promised, and to whom this everlasting covenant is given. Now next, God tells Abraham, I will bless thee. And this was fulfilled both physically and spiritually for Abraham. Now, God adds to that by saying, and make, and make thy name great. As we said earlier, Abraham next to Christ is the outstanding name in all of the scriptures. Now next, God tells Abraham, and thou shalt be a blessing. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was indeed a blessing to the people of his own time and to the world, and through him came the chosen seed. And then God provides protection for Abraham by telling him, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. So both of these statements have been wonderfully fulfilled in the past history of the Jewish people and will be even more wonderfully fulfilled in the future. Every nation that has treated Israel well has been blessed, and every nation that has mistreated them has suffered. Now, this finds its greatest fulfillment in the tribulation period, but I believe that it applies to today as well. Now, next, God adds to his promise by telling Abraham, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, this promise is fulfilled spiritually in Christ, and it shall be fulfilled as it relates to the nations of this earth in the millennium, when the Gentile nations shall be blessed through Israel. 
Now the sign of this covenant is circumcision, and the covenant extends to the end of time, including the new earth. So the Abrahamic covenant reveals the sovereign purpose of God to fulfill through Abraham his program for Israel and to provide in Christ the Savior for all who believe the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant is made to rest upon a divine promise and the power of God rather than upon human faithfulness. So meaning that regardless of what Israel or the nations do, God is going to fulfill this promise. So it's important to note that the Abrahamic covenant ushered in the dispensation of promise. Now remember that a dispensation is an era of time during which man is treated in respect to obedience to some definite revelation of God's will. And dispensations are different from, but are related to the covenants. The study how God has changed how man approaches God is called dispensationalism. So now there were three main elements of the dispensation of promise. First, there were the specific promises affecting Abraham himself, Isaac his son, and Jacob his grandson, and under which individual blessing depended upon individual obedience. You see the difference here? So, individual blessing depended upon individual obedience. Now, next, God made an unconditional promise of blessings through Abram's seed. To the nation of Israel, God promised that they would inherit a specific territory forever. In this contest that's going on today, it is forever, right? Amen? Then he promised blessings to the church as in Christ. Now, in addition, God made promises to the Gentile nations, and these consisted of the promise of blessings upon those individuals and nations who bless Abram's seed, and a curse upon those who persecute the Jews. Now, all of the promises found in this dispensation were generated by the covenant that God made with Abram. Now, the next key point that I want to bring out about these verses is the faith of Abram. Abram, or actually Abraham, is known as the man, the man of faith. And that is the way he is identified in the Word of God. Abram is the supreme illustration of faith in the books of Romans and Galatians. Jesus described Abraham as your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad in John 8, uh, 56. Now in Abram, we will see the worship of faith. Hebrews eleven eight says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. Now notice that Paul tells us, By faith, Abraham did what? He obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. Now you're going to recall that during our study of the faith of Noah, we saw that the worship of God leads to our obedience to God. It leads to work for God. It leads to doing the things that God has called you to do. Now when people truly worship God and catch something of the glory of the person of Christ, then you can depend on them to work for God and to obey Him. Not because you have pleaded with them to do so, but because they want to obey God and His calling for them. Now, the most important word in this verse and in this entire section is the word obey. And it is worship that leads to obedience. In the English, the word obey means to do as you're told or to submit. 
Now, we all understand about obeying our parents and our bosses and the laws of the land, right? But the Greek, it gives it a much more important idea. Now, the word obeyed is translated from a Greek word that means to listen or to hearken. And the emphasis is placed on listening. Now, if you want somebody to do something, then the first thing you have to do is to get them to truly listen to you, right? You, you, you learn that with your kids, right? If you want them to do something, then you got to get them to stop and really listen to you. I, I see it with my uh, black lab. If I want him to do something, he's got to stop doing everything that he's doing. He's got to listen to me, uh, and then he'll do what I ask him to do most of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the full name gets said when he's in real trouble, right? Yeah. So how many of you have heard of an ancient Chinese general named Sun Tzu? Now, he wrote a book called The Art of War. And actually, this was required reading for the company I worked for for 40 years in my early stages of my career. The Art of War by Sun Tzu was required reading. There's a whole reason why all that uh, was the case, but I'm not going to get into it here this morning. But anyway, in, in it, Sun Tzu has a great example of how obedience is tied to hearing. So Sun Tzu once boasted to his emperor that he could teach anybody to do military drills. He was really saying how uh, stupid they were to do military drills, okay? Uh, but he said, I can uh, teach anybody to do military drills. So the emperor took him up on his bet and gave him 100 ladies of the court for him to teach how to do military drills. So these are uh, ladies that are important to the emperor, right? But they're the giggly, uh, laughing, and not serious about anything girls, right? Now, so on the first day, he lines them all up and he tells them what he wants them to do. And all the while, the ladies are giggling and talking between themselves, kind of like the ladies do here out there in the commentary right there. And of course, when, when, they, when they try to do the first drill, the standards and staffs are falling everywhere, right? They're just going all over the place. Well, now the emperor's watching, and he gets a big kick out of seeing the mighty Sun Tzu fail. So, Sun Tzu brings three of them up to the front, and he goes through the exercise again with just these three. This time, the giggling and the talking is getting even louder than it was the first time. Yet this time, when they fail, he immediately cuts off all three of their heads. Now, the giggling immediately stops. Imagine that, right? And the emperor stops enjoying things as well, because three of his ladies just got their head cut off, right? Then Sun Tzu goes through the exercise again with the whole group. And this time, each of them are listening very intently and paying attention to what's being said. In very short order, the ladies are doing the drills perfectly. And, this, and the message here is that Sun Tzu had to get them to listen first, to hearken to what he was saying, and then he got their obedience. It is the same for us with God. Obedience to God comes after we have stopped telling God what we want to do and listened to what He wants us to do. 
Let me illustrate that to you with a question. How much of your prayer time do you spend telling God what you want rather than being quiet and listening to what He wants to tell you? Huh? Amen? How much of your prayer time do you spend doing a speech to God? Remember, prayer is supposed to be a discussion. That means both sides get to talk. Right? Most of us do a speech to God and then we say amen uh, and go on about our ways, right? So that is a measure of how much you hearken or obey God. For you cannot obey God until you know what it is that He wants you to do. you got to listen. Now Abraham was obedient to God because he listened and then transformed what he heard into action. However, in verse 1 of chapter 12 of our study, we find that Abram was obedient in two stages. Now, in the first stage, Abram was only partially obedient. And Moses tells us that now the Lord had said to Abram. Now, notice that word had there that, that, that is used, meaning that it occurred at some point previously. Now, we know from other scripture that God had called Abram while he was still living in the Ur of the Chaldees and before the move to Haran. You just read it in Genesis, it sounds like uh, it was after the, the move, but it wasn't. He spoke to him the first time while he was still there in the Ur of the Chaldees. Acts 7, 2 through 4 says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was where? In Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharon or Haran. And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. So Abram obeyed God by leaving his home, his business, and the high civilization of Ur, as we saw in Hebrews 11.8, not knowing whether he went. He didn't know whether he was going. Yet it was not complete obedience because we read that he took with him some of his family. He took with him his father Terah and his nephew Lot. And even though God had told Abraham not to take them or any of his kindred, he brought them anyway. So uh, Genesis eleven thirty one and 32 says, And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Aram, his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from the Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran. And dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, why was it that God wanted Abram out of the land and away from his relatives? And we learn the answer to that in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24 2 says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood, that means on this side of the flood, in old time. Even Terah the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now notice that Joshua says they served other gods, which means that Abraham, the very definition of faith, was an idolater before God called him. Now that may be something that you really hadn't thought of before. And we learned last week that it did not take very long after the flood for the world to once again turn away from God. And by the time Abram was born, even the line of Shem had fallen into idolatry. And with the world in this state, 
if God was going to save humanity, then God had to separate Abram away from his family. And the other alternative, of course, was for him to blot them all out and start all over again. Now, I'm glad he didn't do that, because if he had, you and I wouldn't be here. Because we arrived here as a sinner. Now, the fact of the matter is, all sinners would have been blotted out. Now, thank God he is a God of mercy and grace, and that he saves sinners. Amen? That's kind of weak. Amen. I mean, you know, aren't you glad that you're a saved sinner? Amen. 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 All right. Now, when we go back to our verses in Acts, we see that when his father was dead, he removed him into his, this land, wherein ye now dwell. So it was not until Terah's death, Abraham's father, that Abraham completed the second half of his journey. We go to uh, Genesis 12.4. So Abraham departed, and as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So Moses tell, uh, tells us that, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. So once Abram's father was dead, Abram decided that he would now follow God's leading into the land of Canaan. Now Abram's pilgrimage began where ours begins. It begins with a vision of another country, a better country, a home forever blessed as the dwelling place of God. Now for us, it's heaven. For Abram, it was the promised land. You see, the path of faith is that God speaks, we believe, faith dawns, and life begins. That's the path of faith. But now notice what Moses tells us about what Abram did. He says, and Lot went with him. Oh my, oh my, 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 my. Notice that Abram is still not being completely obedient to God's command. Abram is taking his nephew Lot with him. He was supposed to leave everybody else behind. And he's taking his nephew with him. Now, isn't that just like man to mess up God's desire for our lives with our own desires, right? Now, fortunately for us, God has everything under control. Nothing that we do is going to mess up God's plan. God already knows that you're going to mess up. And he's already planned for you to mess up, all right? So the important thing is that Abram had found the path of faith. And it is a path that he would stumble and fall on many times. And Abram would have the experiences on the mountaintop and the ones in the valley. Yet Abram had set out to live life no longer by sight, but by faith. So as we look at the fully developed faith of Abraham in the book of Hebrews, we said that we saw the worship of faith. But what were the steps that Abram, before he was known as Abraham, took to become this man who is defined as a man of faith? What were the steps? So in the verses we just covered, we saw that Abram accepted God's call and stepped out on the path of faith. His next step of development is that we see Abram witnessing. Verse 5 says, And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. So we see here that Abram's decision to be obedient to the calling of God had an immediate impact on his family. And this tells us that his family and his servants and those who knew him best immediately joined him. And he made an impact uh, for a new life of faith in all of those that he brought with him. Now, next we see Abram walking. Verse 6 says, And Abram passed through the land into the place of 
Sikkim and unto the land, uh, the plain of Moriah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So we see that Abraham was still in the beginning of his faith, but he was making progress. He was taking one step at a time. He was beginning where every believer begins, walking in the light that he has been given and waiting for a new light to be given, right? You go by what you know and that God wants you to do, and then as God gives you more light and more knowledge, then you do that as well. Now, there is no other way to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. God's just not going to dump everything that He wants you to know on the first day that you become a Christian. That's a lifelong journey that you're going to discover how to serve God. And then we see Abram waiting. Now notice what Moses tells us here. And the Canaanite was then in the land. So there's something important here that I want you to see. So many people think that Abram left a terrible place in the area of the Chaldees. You talk about being a land of idolatry and all of this. And, and then came to the land of corn and wine and land of milk and honey, where everything was just lovely, right? They think that Abram really bettered his lot by coming to this land. That's not the truth, and that's not what the Scripture tells us. The Canaanite was not civilized in any way or form. He was a barbarian, and he was a heathen. He was giving his children into the fire. Uh, they were burning uh, kids and, and so forth. And, and if there was ever a heathen and a barbarian, it was a Canaanite. And Abram's purpose in coming to Canaan was to certainly not to better his lot. He came in obedience to God's command. It wouldn't make his life better. He came in obedience to God's command. But now notice also that all of God's promises did not just immediately come true as soon as Abraham got into the land. As all of us as Christians must do, Abram had to wait on God's perfect timing for all of those promises to be completed. However, now that Abraham, Abram has obeyed, notice what happened. When he appeared in the land, God appeared to him. And then we see Abram's development, and we see Abram worshiping. Verse 7 says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed, Will I give this land? And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And Abram built an altar unto God, and he worshiped God, and that led to what? Obedience to God. He worshiped God by faith, and then he obeyed God by faith. And verse 8 says, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram does two things when he gets into the land. He pitched his tent, which means, in other words, that that's where he lived. Where he pitches his tent, that's where he's going to live. And then he built an altar unto the Lord. Now, that was his testimony to God. And everywhere Abram went, he left a testimony to God. Now, verses 9 and 10 says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. So Paul tells us that by faith, Abram sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. God gave Abram a great call. He called and challenged Abram to be a witness to 
the other people in the world. A witness to the only living and true God. Abram left his home, his friends, his employment, and his country, and he worshipped God. He listened to the call of God, and then he obeyed the call of God. And that is the faith of Abram. Amen? Amen. Amen.